0: Are you one of the three quarters of people struggling with a fear or anxiety around public speaking? Do you wish you could communicate more effectively, develop more meaningful relationships, grow your business and access greater opportunities? Welcome to Simon Speaks, a public speaking podcast with me, your host, Simon Day. In this series, I'll draw on my own experience from terrified teenager to UK award-winning speaker and communications coach as well as speaking to a number of special guests, all with one object in mind, to help you communicate more effectively. Ready to grow? Let's get started. Hello everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It's lovely to have you on this episode and it's lovely to be in the presence of Diksha Chakravarti. I'm privileged to have this conversation this evening. Diksha is director of Fix Me and she's based in the Thames Valley. Uh, She wears two hats. For over 20 years, she's worked as a chronic pain and stress therapist and frees people from being prisoners of pain, as she terms it, and has helped more than 800 clients in that process. She also, for the second hat, delivers stress management workshops and she uses her expertise to help people maintain their well-being at work. As with so many people that I interviewed, she's experiences have led to this and she, she and her family were victims of Uganda's 1972 exodus and that's where much of her empathy stems from and we're going to look into that as we go through her story but she uses her own experiences and her own stories to help empower others and to help them build resilience. She's an avid blogger, uh, article writer and she's a regular guest on BBC Radio Berkshire, lives with her wonderful 93 year old mother uh, down in Berkshire and has two lovely daughters. She enjoys climbing mountains, playing tennis, drawing horses Uh, and she's also an author. She's contributed a chapter in a book called The New Woman, which is stories of the Kintsugi experience. Uh, These are stories written by women who've withstood quite significant challenges and traumas to become strong and resilient people, and you can get a copy of The New Woman on Amazon. What a privilege it is to sit in your presence, Dixie, this evening, and I'm thrilled that we have got to have this conversation. I know that you talk a lot about unmanaged stress, and we're going to talk about why and some of your experiences, but I suppose as we begin, to the, to the average person who might not be fully familiar with what stress is or looks like or how to start to identify if they have unmanaged stress, uh, what would you say by way of introduction to help people perhaps understand that concept a little bit more clearly and the warmest of welcomes to you? Uh,
1: first of all, thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Simon. It's, a, it's an honour and a privilege to be here. And I hope that what little bit of experience and knowledge I bring to your audience, I hope it's going to help them to manage their stress. So thank you so much for having me as a guest on on your podcast. So a very simple definition of stress is when demands on our lives exceed the resources we have available to manage those demands. For some people, you know, putting three tasks on their plate may be too much for them. For other people, putting 12 tasks on on the plate might be too much, and others might be perfectly okay with 15 tasks on their plate. Now, it's all very individual. Now, if we imagine stress as a bell curve, so on the left of the bell curve is what we call eustress. That is when stress is working positively for us, and I'll explain what I mean about that in a bit. But as soon as it goes over onto the right-hand side of the curve, that's when we go into what's known as distress, which is negative stress. So you have positive stress, which is eustress, negative stress, which is distress. So what's, can stress ever be positive? Absolutely. Historically, you know, through, through um, uh, what nature has done is, the stress response is actually a very important and necessary response. It's a survival response. Bottom line is, it's a survival response. The stress response that we have is a survival response. What do I mean? Imagine this little zebra quietly grazing in the African savanna, And he suddenly hears a growl. He turns around and comes face to face with this mangy lion. Now, what's the zebra going to do? He's going to say, hey, mate, what are you doing? Go forward and enjoy life. Well, he will have a very short-lived life if he does that the stress response kicks in there because he is under threat. And the stress response is there to enable him to save his life. So he has three options. Freeze, by the way, we humans do that as well. And then he's got to make a decision whether he's going to stay and fight his enemy to save himself. He realizes this predator is too strong for him. So he then exercises this third option, the third F, which is take flight. And he runs as fast as he can until he's safely away, and as soon as he's safely away, he quietly goes back into munching grass now that survival instinct that kicked in is what the stress response is and that's what every living being has that is how we protect ourselves so the stress response is actually a very important response it is a life-saving response okay so what do I mean by positive stress right so Positive stress. For instance, right now I am under stress. Why? Because I am in performance mode. Right? I am keen to make sure that your listeners get a lot of value from what I'm saying. I'm going to stay articulate. I'm going to stay on topic, and I have to make sure that what I'm what I'm saying actually makes sense and is right. So I'm under a lot, a fair bit of stress, but that's positive stress, right? That's positive stress. However, if suddenly I say something wrong or I stumble my words, or you know my Wi-Fi starts playing up, for instance, suddenly I'm going to distress because I'm going to start panicking there, thinking, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? So that then becomes quite negative if it carries on. So if it's there for five minutes and my Wi-Fi connection comes back and you know, I've got my thoughts back together, whew, I'm back in eustress again. However, if that carries on for longer term, that's when distress starts affecting our body. And the sad bit about it all is that we are currently all stuck in long-term distress. Does that make sense?
0: It, it does, and it's so clear, and it's interesting to know how quickly stress can can overtake us. I, I was interested when you said it's, it's when the level of stress you're under becomes greater than the resources you have to deal with. And I think if you look at what's happened over the pandemic, so many of us very quickly, either financially, emotionally, mentally, socially, the the difficulty that we were under at times very quickly became greater than the resources we had developed to be able to combat what was, and it's that big word again, an unprecedented situation. So I find that fascinating and I, and I think about what we've been through and I can see that, you know, I think about days where I struggled in the pandemic as, as I'm sure we all did. And it was simply because I was in a situation where I didn't see it coming and I hadn't prepared sufficiently with, with my own resources to be able to combat it. So I find that fascinating. And I think the question that comes from that then is what can people do To start to build those resources to preempt, perhaps, future stress?
1: What can people do to preempt future stress? I'm not entirely sure that we can preempt future stress. But what I can help is to talk about how we can build up our resources, our resilience, essentially, so that we can deal with external stress. Let me use an analogy. So you and I are playing tennis and we are quite a sporty guy. You, know, you and I are playing tennis, right? And obviously there's a net between us. So you, know, you hit a shot. As soon as the ball comes across onto my side of the net, I then have a choice to hit that ball in whichever way I think is the most appropriate. Once I've struck it either a log or, va- or a volley or a volley or down the line, whatever it is, once I've hit that ball and it crosses the net, I have absolutely no control over that body or over that ball. Only you do. The problem is what we try to do most of the time in our life, right, is jump across the net and try to control how you hit the ball. We can't do that. We absolutely can't do that. So what does does that mean? What am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is we can only affect stress as much as it affects us. We are sometimes completely have no control about what stress is going to just suddenly appear. The pandemic, for example. For me, the most important thing is to build resilience within ourselves To understand what stress is, to be aware of it, to know what our triggers are, and then to use simple strategies to manage that stress. So we can't stop stress from happening. In fact, we don't want stress um, to stop happening because life would be terribly dull. Life would be very, very dull if we don't have a little bit of stress in our life. So a little bit of stress is always good. But how do we manage it? Because by heck, Simon, we cannot control external stress. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of uh, Stephen R. Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he talks about the the circle of control, the circle of influence and the circle of concern. And and I lose count of the number of times in my life I've tried to worry about the circle of, of concern and try and control what's going on all the way out there. You can't do it. You have to just worry about the things you can control. And you can obviously control how you react and respond to a situation, but you can't control the situation. And so often we try and I just I laugh at myself now. But in the moment where you you're confronted with it, it feels very real and you feel very powerless. And then that sometimes leads you to think quite unreasonably about how you're going to deal with that situation. So I'm very much on on par with this. I I know the feeling well. And it's very uh, it's very interesting to me.
1: The majority of my clients who come in to see me, that is one issue that is common to the majority of them they will try and, they, they try and change the external circumstances. And that would be in the form of a manager. Why is he being so unreasonable? Couldn't he be a little bit more reasonable? If he were a little bit more reasonable, you and I would not be having this conversation in the first place. I hear um, some of my clients who, go through divorce, who are going through divorce, and that's a really stressful time. Um, and, and when they come and see me, so why doesn't he understand this? Why is he doing this? And my retalk to them is always the same if he were to understand this, if he was a guy who would understand this, if he did understand what he was putting you through, do you really think you'd be divorcing him? You know, this, it doesn't happen because there's obviously something that's not right. That's why you're here. To expect a person to suddenly change and become a better version of themselves just to please you is a big ask. Is a big ask. And it's unfair. It's unfair because they are who they are and we are who we are. And that doesn't help us. We are wasting time and getting stressed about something that we cannot control. We absolutely can't control it. Mm. So, uh, as I said, I'm not sure, I can't, I don't believe that we can control the stresses that are thrown at us, but I do strongly believe that, yes, absolutely, we can do something about it. But before we learn what to do about it, we need to see that it's there, understand that it is a trigger for us, and then we can actually work on how do I manage this.
0: Mm. Make sense? I find that fascinating because I, I in a past life I, I worked with addicts and one of the things we, we looked at in the meetings was the serenity prayer, was something that was mentioned often. And and I can see you're smiling. It's uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things accept the things that I cannot that can change, change, courage to change, courage to change the things that I can. The things I can and, and the wisdom. wisdom to
1: know the difference. And, yes. And
0: I find that interesting because, like you say there, sometimes we spend so much of our time trying to change things that we can't change. And what we sometimes end up doing in that process is neglecting the things we can change. And because we're we're focused on the wrong things, we often see situations spiraling out of control. And what I loved about working with those, those people that were suffering with addiction was as they gradually recognized the things that they could control and the things that they could have that power over in those marginal moments, they gradually start to see more victories and they start to come back with weeks and say, I only once this week or only twice this week or not at all this week and and to see that gradual transformation by them simply realizing in a shift of mindset i'm not worrying about that person or what they're saying or what's going on here i'm worrying about my decisions and my choices it became so much more of a a, a joyful process for them and i just i think yes they're addicts but but if you think about the the mentality of that if we adopt that in some of the situations we all find ourselves in it becomes much more of an interesting process because you recognize you've got more control than you think you do when Absolutely. you put your focus in, in the right places.
1: Absolutely. And you you did ask you, the, the second part of the, the first part of the question was, you know, what people can do about it. And you 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 mentioned it beautifully. No matter how stressed we are, no matter how dismal or dark, and trust me, I've been in dark places myself, that life actually looks like. If you turn around and look for tiny little things that, are, that can make us smile or that we can be grateful for, you know, for instance, I'm sitting here recording this, this fantastic podcast with you. How grateful am I to have the opportunity to do that? Now, and, and that requires a mindset. So when, when something is dark, we are in, we are, when we are in the mindset of nothing ever goes wrong for me, right for me, everybody's against me, everybody's talking against uh, behind my back, nothing is going right for me, I would never make it. You know, all these absolutes, never, everybody, all the time. If you just stop and just look at at, at a tiny little daisy in the lawn that has not been mowed, okay, you haven't got a mower out and it's, you're angry because its grass is mowed. just looking at the daisy or a dandelion there, Something that we can be grateful for, that I've got eyes I can still see. How many people cannot see? Yes, what I see around me is very dark, but at least I can see. And that brings me on to the other point that you made, which is mindset. It is changing the mindset. That's really important. And in stress management, one of the standard things I say to people is gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. For the small things. And finding joy in small things as well. Walking barefoot in the grass. Walking barefoot on the grass when it's raining. Just that simple pleasure. Absolutely simple pleasure. So managing stress. It doesn't require, if you can, sit for 40 minutes with cross legs on a cushion meditating. If you can do that, that's brilliant. Some people can. Some people can't. And if you can't, that's okay too. Because just walking five minutes around the block or just standing barefoot in the grass in, your, in, in the back garden, just that and staying in the moment. Because like the Dalai Lama said, and you probably heard this before, Simon, is yesterday's gone. We can't do anything about it. Tomorrow isn't even here. Why worry about it? We can't, we can't affect it. All that we've got is the present moment. And that's all. That's all. That's all we have got. And staying in the moment, being grateful for small things, and enjoying, getting joy out of small things, are three very important strategies, simple, doable strategies for stress management.
0: Yeah, you, you remind me of, of two things. One, one is the, the idea that if you want to understand your present situation, look at what you chose to do yesterday. And if you want to predict tomorrow's situation, look at what you're doing right now. Exactly. And I think that's huge. And, and I remember a story that I, I read quite some time ago about uh, a, an American railroad worker who accidentally switched the points and a carriage went onto the wrong track. And through a simple switching of points, this carriage ended up two and a half thousand miles from where it should have been. And it was one changing of the points. And the great thing about life's track, the writer went on to say, is that there are junctions quite often. And at any time you can choose to switch points that will take you in a different direction. But the thing you have to know is the direction you want to go into the destination you want to be at. And it's a question of is the direction I'm currently traveling taking towards my intended destination or not? And if the answer is no, then obviously you've got to get to the next decision or the next junction and take a different track. And I just thought that was such a beautifully put analogy, but one that we often overlook in terms of the stress of life and sometimes getting caught up in, in these scenarios.
1: I think also you've raised another very important point. um, And at every, at every moment in time and I don't know if I'm going to anger your listeners by saying this but at every moment in time we have a choice we have a choice in every moment in time to do something or not to do it somebody I've read in a lovely book I'm reading a wonderful book called um, Conversation with God by Neil Walsh and this is about this guy who was right at the pit at the end of his tether. Everything was going wrong. Um, and he's had this conversation with God. And, you know, like some people say, well, I haven't made a decision. Well, not making a decision is a decision. You see, so every, every moment in time, we have a decision. And I think what stress does, it paralyzes us. And so we lose clarity. Brain fog is a big thing with stress. We lose clarity, and therefore we cannot make decisions. And because we cannot make decisions and make those choices, we feel we have none. We feel we have none. You know, even during COVID, we were locked in, we were under under, under a lot of stress. And I froze when I first heard about it. I completely froze because I thought this is the end of fix me. This is this is my career. And and uh, everything gone. I have. I, I will have no money to live on. So of course I froze. And after, when I came out of froze, I decided to stay and fight because I was not having this one cell organism run me out of town. I am going to leave town when I was well and ready for it. I'm not going to get kicked out of town. So that's when I started actually looking at how I could do what I could do, carry on, do what I do. So I started, and in, immediately I started a pro bono online meditation group just helping people uh, to manage their stress I started doing pro bono zoom calls to people just you know did newsletters and contacts to say if anybody's in, in any trouble need any assistance with either anxiety with stress or pain please give me a call let's do a zoom link I did several zoom sessions with people who are undergoing you know musculoskeletal pain and stress, and anxiety, all a pro bono. I started doing free virtual workstation assessments for people, because they were all hunched in front of the computer, just to make sure that everybody out there, as best as I could, I could keep offering what I was doing, because people were stuck. People were stuck.
0: I think that's great, and and it reminds me of Martin Luther King, you know, where he says, if you can't run, walk, if you can't walk, crawl, but keep moving oh. forward. And, and that Sounds very much what you did there, and and you know you can see now that you you're about to obviously move in different directions with the work that you're doing and, and looking for exciting new ventures. And you perhaps wouldn't have been at this point had you not kept going through the pandemic. So I'm I'm really respectful of obviously what you what you did with that. And I want to take you back into your story now because, like so many people that I interview, your ability now to empathize and empower others comes from personal experience and I wonder if you'd be kind enough to, to to share some of that with me so take me back through your story and, and what happened and what you remember and how that's perhaps informed what you're you're doing now
1: okay thank you I shall sure indeed so I was um I was born in Africa I was born in Uganda um uh, my father was a teacher and he had been recruited uh, but the, the British government who were at that time in Uganda, Uganda got its independence in 1963. So they were uh, looking for teachers to build the education system in Uganda. My father was one of the teachers who went along with this, this, this whole bunch of teachers from India. Uh, went along and my father was one of them so when my my family came to Uganda it was my father my mother and my and my brother who was five years old I was then born uh in Uganda and we lived there for 15 years and it was a charmed life it was a charmed life in as much as it just open, it was beautiful you know I don't think people knew what stress was there you know we played Uh, freely on the streets nobody was worried about it the papayas were gorgeous the mangoes were phenomenal you know the 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 flora and and, uh, the fauna were fantastic it was a beautiful beautiful country having said all of that I have to say that there was a very strict hierarchy racial hierarchy so the white people there uh, predominantly British people they were right at the top of the pecking order um after that came the indians who were professionals and in business and i'm ashamed i'm ashamed to say that the black native people were right at the bottom so there was they were kept very 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 oppressed they were not allowed to rise um, their schools are different again i'm ashamed to say that when i when I, when i was growing up there i didn't have any african friends uh, my brother did because he was a bit of a maverick used to have African friends and used to, stay with Af- used to play with African boys, but the family didn't know anything at all about it. Um, so the African people really suffered in the hands of the British and in the hands of the Indians there. So fantastic, 15 years, lovely time. And then Idi Amin came to power. He got rid of Milton Abote and he came to power. And he decided that the Indians would have to leave the country, he gave us 90 days to leave the country because he realized, rightfully so, that the Indians had uh, completely monopolized the economy of Uganda and had not served the country very well and the natives of Uganda, the real people of Uganda. And so he decided that he was going to throw the Indians out and he gave us 90 days within which to leave Uganda. Um, You can imagine all hell broke loose so my father was exempt. Our family was exempt from it because he was a civil servant. So he, the, the, it started off with the edict coming all Indians out in 90 days. And every two days it would change. It would change. So this person was exempt and this person became, became exempt and this profession became exempt, etc., etc. Because really it was an emotional decision. It wasn't a thought out decision. It was a hugely emotional decision. And... Um, I understand the reason why he took it so suddenly was because he had proposed marriage, apparently. Allegedly, he had proposed marriage to a very wealthy Indian widow and he had been turned down. So this uh, this rejection is what made him take, allegedly take this hugely detrimental and emotional um, decision. So yes, so it came down the line that civil servants were exempt. So my father was exempt. So we didn't actually have to leave. country however however it was becoming very very dangerous for indians there because and this is what i've written in in my book that um indian women and girls were being raped indian households were being broken into at night they were being robbed they were being butchered by the army because the you know the the indigenous africans thought right now this is it you know everything is fair fair game we can do what the hell we want to we can do and actually Idi I mean, encouraged that. He actually encouraged um, this huge brutality. And there are several books written on this as well where, you know, actual, um, where you see, you know, dead bodies were seen live, floating in the river. So it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. So overnight my family decided that I was going to leave the country because it was no longer safe. And, um, So, you know, that decision was taken without any input from my side. I was not part of the decision-making process. On Monday, my brother uh, sat me down with my dad and mom and said, sis, you're going to leave for India on Saturday. So this was on the Monday and I was leaving on Saturday. And now we say, oh, you know, she's flying here or I'm flying there. But I've never been on an airplane before, Simon. So he actually said, so I said, uh, you know, where? uh, I'm going to Mombasa to go on a ship because that's how we had been traveling to India. He said, no, you're going to fly. I said, I'm going to be on an airplane. He said, yes, you're going to go on, on the airplane. I said, are you coming with me? And he said, no, you're going alone. So I was 15 years old. I'd never been on an airplane before. And here my brother's telling me that on Saturday, I was going to be put on this airplane to go to India and live with, my, with, with relatives whom I hardly knew. So if you wanted stress... <laughs> Bucket loads of stress then, um, and the whole process was so stressful because Indians, as they made their way from whichever city or town they were in to Entebbe, which is where um, the which is where the uh, airport uh, is, they were being attacked. You know, we, we then had to go by convoy. But even going by convoy didn't stop the drunken soldiers on checkpoints stopping us and and beating and and raping and stealing. All that was happening right in front of us. Um, But, you know, my journey uh, to the airport was relatively easy. But I had a horrible experience when I actually got to the airport. And if it's agreeable to you, I just want to read. I've spoken about this in my In my book, can I just, if it's okay for me to read a chapter of that book. Um, So there we go. Um, My departure day dawned. I lay on my bed looking up at the ceiling in a state of numbness. We traveled to enter the airport in a convoy. This had become the norm for Indians who were fleeing the country to avoid harassment by the army at checkpoints. Not that they stopped the army, but at least it gave the Indians a semblance of security. When I arrived at the immigration hall all alone, clutching my passport aged 15, I had just said said a hasty goodbye to my family. The arrangements had been made with such speed that i had had no time to even consider the magnitude of this event. So here I was all alone, about to board a plane to go to India, to stay with family I hardly knew and away from the family I had never been apart from. In one corner of this very large, desolate empty hall, sat a solo immigration officer swinging back and forth on his chair. He cocked his finger and beckoned me over. I have a very clear recollection of this moment, a moment of utter terror. There was no one else around. As I approached, he leered at me, held out his hand and shouted, passport! Hands shaking, I handed my passport over. He checked it out, brought his face close to mine. I could smell the alcohol on his breath and asked me why I was leaving the country. I remember taking a step back. I had been tutored to say that my grandma was sick. Still leering and leaning forward, he asked me, when are you going to return? The parrot in me replied, as soon as grandma is better. He then leant back, crossed his arms, smiled and shouted, good, I will marry you when you return. To which I squeaked, sure. He handed over my document, enjoying every bit of my terror. I turned around and walked away. Sweat was pouring down my back and armpits, soiling my brand new outfit. Honestly, dear reader, I could feel his eyes pouring into my back. By the time my shaking legs and prayers carried me safely to a table, I heard voices indicating that other people were now coming into this
0: dungeon of terror. I can't can't imagine. I mean, it's so beautifully written and I can see you there. I can envisage that. But to try and put yourself emotionally in a situation like that. I mean, I I was 15 and it was the one and only time that my family have have been on holiday to America. We have relatives in America. And I was just trying to imagine what it would have been like if, if one of my family here would have said, you're going on an airplane to America on your own because England's now a dangerous place and I try and hark back to when I was 15 and how I would have felt about that I can't even compute how that would have been the the stress that would have put me under you know I was quite an anxious 15 year old I wasn't confident I wasn't particularly outspoken or outgoing I didn't have a strong personality Uh, I was probably nervous enough about going on an airplane with my parents never mind going on my own so that's extraordinary
1: and I had no idea that I would ever see my family ever again. I no. did not know that. But here's the thing, Sam, and this is what stress does. What it did for me then was I could have had a paddy, I could have a tantrum, I could have had a breakdown. Now, if I'd gone all, all, all if i if the stress, if I'd allowed the stress to actually come out the way that it clearly needed to was for me to get emotional about it, my family would have been torn. My family would have been torn about what to do with me. How could they keep me safe otherwise? And this is what happens on an unconscious level. You suddenly become grown up. You suddenly say, what is the right thing to do over here? The right thing to do would be to leave and take the consequences, whatever that. So you steal yourself. You steal yourself. Now, that is a good stress response because you are faced with a terror. You've got to work. You've got to make yourself safe through that. But later on, you need to actually... Process that. Mm. The thing is, I never got the opportunity to process that. So mm. that that stress stayed with me, and it stayed with my family. So when I left and went to India, you know, I, there's another passage where I look, where I explain how just as I'm boarding the plane, I want to turn around and say goodbye to my family, but as I turn around, I see a dark. It's as dark. It's equator. I mean, e- equatorial nights are very dark, and all I can see lights of the uh, airport buildings and I can't see my family and then I was thinking I said goodbye I can't do that because I can't see them so anyway so I went to India I stayed up for two two years my parents joined me a year later and then my brother came here when I went to India my brother came to the UK he settled here got himself a good job um, and then he said right you guys need to come over we can be a family together again so that was great that was great that we could be a family together again But here's the thing, again, nobody asked me, nobody asked me, do you want to stay in India? Do you want to finish your studies in India? Or do you want to come to England? It was just taken, the decision was taken. And there you see, again, I had no control about my external circumstances, no control at all. So we came to this country um, in May, 1974. On the 18th of May, 1974, we landed at Heathrow and on the 18th of June 1974 was my father's funeral. He died within a month of landing here. And it was the stress of the exodus, and somehow having survived the two years in India. And finally, when we could just go, okay, we are okay, that's when his systems just gave up. And that is a very common stress response. How many times do people go on holidays and suddenly they get a cold or a cough? or a tummy bug or something like that happens which completely takes them out takes them about three or four days to decompress and then come back again because when we are stressed you know, our, foot's on the, our foot's on the accelerator continuously right so we are we are on emergency funds all the time it's like road runners we're running and running and running and running and running and then the road runner comes off the mountain and he's still running but he's got nothing to run against So he goes straight down. And that's exactly what happens to us with stress. And that's when our father died. He died as a result of the stress of the exodus without a shadow of doubt.
0: You you remind me of an experience I had a a few years ago. Uh, We have two children and our son Eli is about to turn six. And our daughter Nellie is just about to go three. So Elias was born 2016 in January. And when he was born, there were some quite significant complications. He was a very big boy. He was nearly 11 pounds. Uh, my wife is only five foot six and he, he should have been a cesarean, simple as that. But by the time the, the clinicians managed to get to us and, and assess the situation, my wife, stubborn and tenacious as she always has been, had done the work so well uh, that uh, there was only one way he was going to come out. And obviously the, the impact of the, the birth um, caused some quite significant problems for my wife but also for uh, our son who was born with the cord wrapped around his neck and so for those moments I was watching my son not breathing and my wife bleeding <laughs> and not knowing what was going to become of either of them uh, and and Elias started to breathe thankfully and and we managed to to sort that situation out so that was obviously a huge moment of relief and then my, my wife fell into unconsciousness and needed transfusions. And the next couple of days were, were very harrowing. So that that moment that you watch on television where the, the couple get the, the baby and they have their lovely moment of tears and joy and happiness, never really happened for us at the start. And for the first few months, I was very much in the thick of things because I, I got my two weeks personality leave, obviously. But the first week of that was going to and from the hospital, checking mm. on my wife. And the second week was really just me looking after a lot of things because she was still recovering and she was recovering for quite a long time. But you're you're only away from the workplace for two weeks. And then as a, as a father, you go back to work and people are expecting you to hit the ground at the same place you were two weeks before. And they don't realize just how upside down your world has turned in two weeks. You know, you go and ask how they are at work and they say, oh, same old, you've not missed much. And they go, what have I missed? And you go, everything. And and so, I recognised within a few months that I was suffering with postnatal depression. I was I was exhausted, I was struggling, um, couldn't process very well emotionally. I was all over the place. And within three four months, I recognised I had a problem. Uh, and we we didn't have any support in terms of NHS counselling or anything that was provided after after the birth I didn't know things like that were available and so I got to about four or five months in and I thought I don't think I'm going to do this by myself I think I need to talk Um, to somebody because I don't understand fully what's happening I just knew that things weren't right and so I went to speak to somebody and and they listened they just said talk just speak and I started to speak and then it all just unraveled and didn't think I was crazy anymore they, they told me what I was experiencing was quite rational and that this is what happens with the stress response and, and all of these things and over the course of about nine months this counselor worked with me and gradually just got me to a point in my own mind where I just didn't feel crazy anymore I didn't feel like I was irrational I didn't feel like there was anything bad or innately horrible about what I'd been feeling emotionally Um, the blame that I'd attached to different people and different things. They just helped me get some perspective on it. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect now. and And I still see moments where I can see, you know, I have the odd nightmare. I have the odd flashback and I have the odd moment where I can very quickly get impatient with my son because I think there's still a little bit of that lingering mentality there of of what had happened with him and with my wife and everything else so I do still see it in myself but but if you're talking about where we are now to where we were five years ago a hell of a lot better but I I recognize the things that you've been describing as as that was what happened to me in a moment of extreme stress where I simply didn't have the resources but I went and got them and gradually acquired them uh, and it helped hugely so when when you're talking about these things I, I don't fully understand the the intimate nature of your situation but I can equate it to something mm, that I, mm, I know that mm, I've mm, been through absolutely um, you you see, when, when,
1: when my dad died um it was kind of it, it was shock after shock after shock mm-hmm. um, and as I said I hadn't didn't have any time to process the stress of the exodus um and and my family in, in India were absolutely superb but there was such a kind of cultural shock to navigate that I was kind of I was like, you know, a, a non-swimmer being thrown into the sea and I'm just coming up from air and then going down again. You know, that was that was the pattern of my life. And that became the pattern of my life. Now, you recognize that things weren't right, okay? I didn't because I just thought, this is the norm. So just get on with it. So when my dad died, um, that was a huge shock. I was very close to my dad. And, you know, I came back one afternoon from having from. from shopping and found an ambulance driving away um and he was in the ambulance having had a cardiac arrest so this was about three o'clock in the afternoon on the saturday and on sunday morning by six o'clock he was gone so you know i i I just saw him once in the hospital he was unconscious i saw him once in the hospital and the next thing i know next morning there's you know that i died Now, my brother and my mother were very close. Sadly, I lost my brother uh, in 2011 um, to lung cancer. Um, And um, he and my mother were very close. My mother was only 45. My father was 55. My mother was only 45. So everybody's focus was on managing mother. And I was just left to fend for myself. I was absolutely left to fend for myself. Now, I didn't know. I remember sitting one day, Simon, by the window, I was so shut down by then, I actually remember asking myself the question, how should I be feeling right now? I didn't know what I was feeling. I just had no idea what I was feeling. And that became the story of my life. I just carried on and on and on and on. My resource, I I had just enough resource to cope with what was happening outside, but inside I was dying. Inside there was nothing. There was such a great, big steel armor around me. And I just coped one day at a time, one day at a time. Things went terribly wrong. My education didn't go the way that I wanted it to. You know, dreams were shattered. Again, this is something I, I write about in my story. I got married on impulse. Yeah, I, I wanted something to change. And I got married on impulse. It didn't work out. It was a disaster. That's when my clinical depression kicked in because I didn't know where I was going. I was completely lost. I was shut down and I was lost and I didn't know what to do about it because I didn't, I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know how to fix it. I just did not know how to fix it. And then there was this whole horrible acrimonious divorce. I was fighting the general chiropractic council at the same time as I was going through a divorce So everything is just layered, one after the other. And one can only cope so much. And I went deeper and deeper and deeper into clinical depression. There were days during the the divorce, Simon, I would get up in the morning, get the kids to school, and come back home and get under the duvet and stay there until it was time to pick them up, go and pick them up, come back, feed them, bathe them, put them to bed, and go straight back into bed again. And that was my pattern for a time when I was so seriously clinically depressed but I still carried on which is what most people do they still carry on until they break fortunately my breaking point was a clinical depression and it wasn't a stroke or cancer but stroke and cancer came our way it hit my daughter at the age of 25. My 25 year old daughter was at work there had been a lot of stress in her lives with with uh, this horrible divorce and a very dysfunctional family situation. Um, Her work was not going well. She had been in a terribly, terribly, terribly narcissistic relationship for several years that she was still struggling to extricate herself out of. Um, And she was at work and she got – she was hit by a stroke. And at the age of 25, she had a stroke. She was taken by ambulance to Charing Cross Hospital uh, where they – where she underwent brain surgery. And they were so concerned about her safety that they didn't even put her on the GA. So she saw the brain surgery completely awake and saw the way that they were actually trying to get rid of the clot in her brain. She actually saw all of that in front of her. And she had PTSD from that. She had absolute PTSD with that. I mean, I can't imagine how she did it, but she's a brave soul. And when I got the news that she had had a stroke, I was coming out of a business networking meeting and my older daughter rang me up and told me that she had had a stroke. My first response was freezing because I didn't believe what had I I just. I froze and I screamed. And the next thing was I had to get to her. Um, so I got onto the M4 and I remember I just somehow got onto the M4 and I put my foot down. And, you know, before I knew it, uh, you know, I was exceeding the speed limit by miles. And I suddenly realized a little voice inside my head said, what are you doing? Do you want to end up in a different hospital to her? What has happened has happened. We can't change that. And what is in the future, we will deal with. But right now, let's stay in the moment and get to her safely. And this little voice in my head said, get into the slow lane and stay there. And I just made my way gently to the slow lane, stuck my cruise control on 60. It was a sunny day. And I remember just looking around and those little things that we began to, I saw the, the birds in the sky. I saw this dirty red car go past me. I thought, oh, that car needs a, a wash. I was looking at the face of the people passing me, you know, just looking at the fields on the left-hand side, just watching the traffic. a string very much in the moment while slowly breathing. And that's how I got to Charing Cross. But once I got to Charing Cross, all hell broke, broke loose because my older daughter was there. She sat me down. And she said to me that she was undergoing surgery. So here was my 25-year-old baby who was undergoing brain surgery for a stroke and hadn't even seen her. And I didn't know what was, what was going to come at the other end. So fortunately, she got the f- fantastic care at Charing Cross, um, very well looked after. Um, she was there for a couple of weeks. And then they said, it was just before Easter, they said, you need to go home and you know, it's no use you staying in the hospital over Easter to go home and I remember as I was calling, she was very unsteady on her feet and as I was taking her to the uh, lift, as we were walking to the lift she stopped and she burst into tears and she said I can't do this, I can't do this Um, what happens if it happens again and I'm out of the hospital and this is such this is so many times I've come across seriously ill people after they've been in a hospital and they have been looked after and I don't know if that was the case with your wife as well after they've been looked after, when they are then said, Oh, you can go home, the fear, what happens if it happens again? And I'm not in a hospital and therefore will not be looked after. What happens then? So, anyway, we took her home um, and she slowly, there was, a, there was a lot, she had a lot of problems, a lot of mess ups there, but she was slowly recovering. Um, and then she found a lump uh, uh, by the side of her throat. They examined it and they said, No, it's benign. Um, they did a biopsy it's benign but let's get it out in case it becomes cancerous so they took it out and they messed up the surgery they burnt her they cut her she's got two great big scars going there and they said no it's okay it's all out don't worry about it it's clean it's fine and um and then later on she went there to change her dressing and they said uh, I'm sorry to tell you this but you've got thyroid cancer so she had thyroid cancer before the year was out um and they had to operate, and they took the other thyroid out as well. So she does not have a thyroid, but that's when she seriously went into depression. The stroke, she went into depression and fear, but she worked through that slowly. But when, when she was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, she said, Ma, the C word is a dirty word. It's a dirty word. And that's when she said, Why the hell me? What have I done? that?" To, to have a stroke and be diagnosed with thyroid cancer all in the same year. Why? And as a mother, all I could do was stay on the sidelines. I, the helplessness, the helplessness that I felt, um, the sadness I felt for her, it, it was just, it broke my heart. It just broke my heart. But I had to be the mom, I had to be the strong one, I was looking at which consultants to talk to, what what kind of cancer she had had and what were the chances, what, you know, I was doing all the research, I was doing all of that so, and I was still running my practice, still looking, I was still running my practice over here, doing the work, she had moved in with me, looking after her, she was in a very bad place and supporting her. Um, but I did it like we do do. The stress was huge, but you carry on, but you carry on and you carry on. And this was in, in 2015. And um, yeah, so over the years, i recognized things were not quite right. So I've had some help, but I do a lot of, I, I do a lot of meditation. And for me, that that and my honesty with myself, I think, and my, my, My readiness, my readiness to see reality as it is. For example, I can only change how I respond to something, and that I can't change things happening. I can only look at how I'm responding to them and do the best I can under the circumstances. So that, in a nutshell, is the sort of how I have navigated the stress. It's not the healthiest way to have done it, but I didn't know any other way. And that's why I'm determined to help people realize that you can do something about it. Because I didn't. I didn't know and I didn't. So I was stuck in clinical depression for years and years and years and years. I was emotionally shut down. Inflict of depression, and I handled things so badly because I was in distress, extensive distress.
0: Yeah, that's it, it's such a profound story. And, and I often interview people, and, and I often ask them, and I think you've, you've partly answered it uh, because the people I interview have, have often gone through some quite significant adversity as you have, and they've often use that adversity as a gift to help others rather than to be consumed by it and i find that extraordinary and i always ask them what it is about them or what they remember or what they had growing up or what they found on the journey that that has led them to take that road rather than be consumed and you know you've articulated that beautifully and what i what i find interesting and i'm reminded of is I was speaking to a really good friend of mine, Kate, quite recently. She's another coach and a speaker. And something that she said to me when I was speaking to her was that our lives quite often become a reflection of the questions that we consistently ask ourselves. And you've kind of alluded to it there, which is, you know, sometimes when things are happening to us, the sort of questions we can ask is, you know, why is this happening to me? What's the point? And, and those questions, whilst natural as an instinctive response to, to stress, have to lead somewhere. Because if we get stuck in those questions and we never stop asking them, then that's where we get consumed. But gradually, if we learn to start asking questions like, what can I learn here? What qualities am I trying to develop? How can I use this experience to be of service to somebody else? Th- these are very difficult questions to ask. But it's, it's the migration to those questions that gradually help us to find what uh, what Viktor Frankl referred to as meaning in adversity. And, and you know, it, it sounds like you've been on that journey yourself and, and a couple of others have. And when you gradually find that purpose, that meaning, you're then able to find what I, I believe is, is something of a calling that, that you can have such an impact in somebody else's life because you've utilized the experiences that you've had to help them. Uh, And I find that extraordinary. You
1: know, it's... and I can't... I can't... I've been completely honest here to say that I didn't... A, I didn't know I was stuck. Um, I didn't know any other way to be. And, And if I had, maybe I would have looked for tools to do something about it, yeah? It was only when I was absolutely on my knees absolutely on my knees. I could not get out of bed. That's when, and even then, it was my daughter said, Mom, come on, how long are you going to stay? the state?" Then I okay, you know what? I'll do something about it. And that's when I got, I went and got the help that I needed. But I'm still, I'm, I'm very stubborn, Simon. I'm very stubborn. So... <laughs> For me depending on anything external is is never the answer it's always come the strength needs to come from within and that is what i have worked on for the majority of the recent years is developing the strength from within and and that comes with what you said right at the start changing the mindset it's recognizing where you are. I had to recognize that I was in a very bad state and I needed to do, some, do something about it. Yes, I had the antidepressants to start off with. I started with Prozac and it worked beautifully. Then me came off it and then I went back on it again and it didn't work, so they gave me something else. Um, but my determination is I'm no longer on them and my determination is I'm going to do this myself. I do not forever want to be dependent on anything external because you take that away and I'm going to fall again. Where's my inner resilience? If I'm going to stand, I'm going to stand myself. If I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall myself. Yes, I need crutches from time to time. Yes, I'm going to need help from time to time. Of course, that's it. And that's my answer to all my clients. I don't want you dependent on me for the rest of your life. I want, I'm want. i here to help you, and then you just go away and manage with the tools that I give you. Um, so for me, it's always been about self-development. It's all about me asking the questions, why and how and where next? And how can I manage this best to, my, to the best of my ability? Having the mindset to say, you know, I'm doing that wrong, let me change it. This is my mindset I need to change. What? How can I make myself stronger? How can I make myself stronger? Um, adversity is part of life. Death is part of life. I don't understand why we get so shocked with death because there's nothing more certain the day we are born that we will die. Yeah. But I don't understand still why we get so shocked. But death is part of life. Death is part of life's journey. But we don't have to die whilst we're living. And so many of us lead a life of death whilst we're living. And my favorite saying is is by Dr. Wayne Dyer, don't die with the music still in you. And for me, the music is in me and I need to find it. And so my passion now is to say to people, I did it. You come too. So together, helping people manage their stress, give them various different techniques to manage stress and help them whilst holding their hand whilst they're still stumbling. And then once they, they go from crawling to walking, then take a back seat and just see them run. To serve is part of my values and to bring, give, give people, to empower people to know themselves it's just fascinating.
0: And that's, that's what my mission is. Absolutely. And, and it's those sometimes small strategies that, that can start small and build. But you, you talk about just being present in the moment, trying to take that few moments to breathe, um, trying to feel gratitude for even the smallest thing that you might have that's, that's good in your life. Uh, I've taken to journaling, using a journal. Uh, to record thoughts and impressions and and reflect, I find that very useful. Um, and and there are so many small things that you can do. And 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 I know that you've run so many of these stress management workshops in in recent times. And I know that you're looking now to to do further work in places like schools with yes. with staff members and and leadership teams. And I think that's critical because you know having worked in the education sector. Uh, for a number of years I know the pressure that that sector is under Uh, and obviously the health sector as well and others but I, I empathize with educators because I see them and I see what they do and for so long through the pandemic so many people in all different sectors have had their foot on the accelerator as you termed it for a long time and have sometimes not had the resources to fully deal with it other than to keep plowing through and I think I'm expecting to see a huge upswing in the number of people requiring support with stress, mental health, coaching, counseling in, in the next few years, which I think is why now your work is has is, is always been relevant, but I think it's going to become so much more relevant in the, the times ahead. Um, so I hope that people are going to to take this seriously, to engage with you and to put in place some of the strategies that you recommended in, in your workshops so as we draw towards the conclusion what i want to do is give you a few minutes now to take us through i know you you're, you're an author you've written books tell us about the books but also explain how people can engage with you get in touch with you and what sort of things you can offer to them to help them and their their organizations to manage their stress better
1: sure okay okay so, uh, my main focus going forward now is stress management workshops. So, um, these, I can tailor them to the requirements uh, of the organization or the group, but any, any organization or group that feels that their team members are stressed, are not, um, are not producing uh, their best results, they're seeing effect on, on say, things like absenteeism, presenteeism, they are project deadlines are being missed. Um, these are all signs uh, that somebody is under stress, things like you know personal hygiene, they are not particularly care. they don't care about how they turn up at work, for example, they're they are isolating, they're becoming very insular, communication is difficult. These are all signs that somebody is, is stressed. So I'll be very happy to talk to people who run their teams um, and work create a workshop that is very uh, that is bespoke and tailored to their needs. Essentially, I feel uh, to our workshop, which is very interactive is enough, longer than that people lose attention, but they also go, got to go away and actually assimilate and put into practice what we discuss. And then I'm there as a support for the organisation, um, either as the leader of the organisation, keeping uh, in touch with him or her, or if people then go away and find out what individual needs, then I'm very happy to actually be one-to-one with the people there as well. So people can get in touch uh, with me via my website, which is www.fixme.org.uk. They can email me, diksha at fixme.org.uk. They can contact me through LinkedIn um, under Diksha Chakravarti, and they can call me on 07878148229. 148 229. The book, the name is uh, "The New Woman: The Kintsugi Experiences." There's 33 of us uh, women who have contributed chapters to them to the book, Um, and it's all about resilience, empowerment, resilience, and standing up against the storm. And I think your listeners would find it very, very interesting to read. uh, There are women who have battled cancer. There are women who have battled domestic violence they women who have battled clinical depression. They've battled controlling relationships, narcissistic relationships, abuse from family. So um varied traumas that we have all experienced, but we are still standing and we're still smiling and we intend to do that for a very long length of time. So it's called The New Woman and it's available on Amazon.
0: Wonderful. These hours always go too fast. Uh, I've <laughs> thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this because it, it's... Reaffirms to me a number of principles that I had either known but needed to be reminded of or needed to be refreshed on and it's just re-emphasized to me so many good and and true principles that you know if we will just take those few moments to be conscious of how hard this has all been for us over the last couple of years and and perhaps people living with earlier experiences that, that aren't quite resolved yet but if we put that into the forefront and if we don't have the resources yet acquire them and sometimes yes. that means acquiring people yes um, and and other sources of support to help us battle through you know i've had experiences where i've done that and and it's helped immensely and obviously you've described similar situations so i just hope that people listening to this will take that on board and and realize that however long they think they've been battling something it's not so long that they don't need to get help with it and, and can't be helped with it so I'm very grateful to you, Dixie, for the time that you've given and and for the wisdom that you shared and the insights and everybody else for listening and for you sharing your your information. And we will put all of the links to all of your channels, your website, your email address and your book into the show notes. Please follow those. Go have a look and make sure that you engage with with Dixie to help with your organization and with your own productivity on a one to one or an organizational level. Uh, And I just want to thank you again for everything that you've done. And I hope people will tune in next time to the podcast. But thank you once again for joining me today.
1: You're very welcome indeed. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Simon. Thank you so much indeed.
0: Thank you for tuning into today's episode of Simon Speaks, a public speaking podcast with me, your host, Simon Day. I hope that what you've learned in today's episode will help you become a more effective communicator as you put it into practice. You can visit my website simonspeaks.co.uk for more information, tips, articles and resources or to speak to me about working with me as a coach. I'm also available on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Simon Speaks. I'm on LinkedIn and I also have a YouTube channel. Just search for Simon Speaks. Thanks again for tuning in today and I look forward to seeing you again next time.